Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Tony Corrish. Tony is the head teacher of the Douay Martyrs Roman Catholic Secondary School in Hillingdon, London, a mixed academy for students aged 11 to 19 which forms part of the Diocese of Westminster Academy. Me trust. Tony, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Oh, Scott, you're very welcome. Thank you. And good morning to you. Good morning. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Tony. Um, the purpose of this discussion, of course, is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we dive in by just taking that word leader aside for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and what a leader ought to be in your eyes. Yeah, I think I think obviously a leader can be a, a number of things, but I think it also comes down to maybe some key principles that that, that I've tried to operate as a, a leader in as a head in two different schools over the last fifteen years or so. Um, I, I think initially it has to be pinned on authenticity. Um, like you, you need to know what are your key principles, what are you trying to achieve. Um, and I think that becomes even more important when we're in times of crisis that you, they're your reference points. Um, I think it's also about having a kind of strong moral and ethical purpose as a leader. And so it can't be simply pragmatic. It's got to be, it's got to be a real, a very strong moral and ethical purpose. And I've always worked in Catholic schools and, uh, and that is, is obviously writ large, uh, for us even more so perhaps than in other contexts. I think. Also, for me, being a leader involves acknowledging that you're part of a wider group of people, um, that you are leading a team and get rid of your ego and and make sure that you're developing lots of other people. It's almost as if your first job as a a leader is to start looking around for who your successor might be and making sure that you're really nurturing those people. Um, In terms of styles of leadership, I think you have to have a, a repertoire that suits the occasion. So... There are times when you have to be maybe fairly directive, uh, maybe when you first joining an organisation which needs to move on quickly, uh, and then you learn from that as you develop people and your style may change, so that there's much more uh, a more broadly based form of leadership um, uh, that you are actually uh, almost the the conductor of the orchestra rather than um, uh, the player, you know, the first violin. Um, I think also just having a sense of humility you know, being a human being, uh, accepting that you're flawed and that other people can also make mistakes um, mm. and and uh, allowing people to make mistakes uh, and not, uh, not immediately uh, jumping on them because of that. Uh, and then finally, I think in a school context, you've got to acknowledge that you're the leader of, of, of multiple groups of people. The, the staff obviously are looking to you as leader, but so are the students and so are the, the parents. So there are multiple audiences for the leadership, I think, uh, in a school context. And it's natural, of course, in sort of any kind of business institutional environment to look to our leaders for direction and inspiration. But when you are the one at the top of the tree, as it were, where do you look to as inspiration as a leader yourself? Um, I, I think a number of things. One, constantly reflecting on my own experience and and leaders that perhaps uh, influenced me, had teachers and other school leaders that influenced me when I was uh, perhaps a classroom teacher 
uh, and so on and so forth. Also, I think it's really important to have a network of other senior colleagues, in my mm. case, working within within a trust. You know, I've got 10 other uh, head teachers that I can make sure that, uh, you know, that I, I, I consult, I ask them for their opinion, I'm I'm asking them to, to, to sort of check over what I think we might be doing. Um, but also just looking outside uh, of, 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 of education. A particular um, inspiration for me is, 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 is Oscar Romero, the, the El Salvadorian bishop from the 1970s who was, who was um, uh, executed by, by the regime. And he, he constantly said things like, you know, remember that you're, 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 you're part of the solution. You're not, you're not the solution. You're part of the solution. And, and, and just be be aware that you are that you, you've got to bring other people on, and you can't do every single thing um, uh, to perfection. Uh, so people like him uh, really inspire me. But ironically, perhaps it's someone I'm really interested in as a leader is is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who mm. I just think just inspires in in everything that he did, everything I read about him, everything I see about him. Where he he just had this incredible moral purpose. And even when he was being knocked sideways very often, he just seemed to say, I'm going back to my core principles, I'm going to stick with them, and I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring people with me. Uh, and that, that, to me, just when you're having a kind of a, a, a bad evening, you've had a bad day, uh, to me, I just kind of think, oh, you know what, he did it, and he, was, he had a hell of a lot more on his plate than I've ever had. And I can imagine that, the example of uh, Roosevelt there is um, hugely relevant in the here and now because when Boris Johnson just a couple of weeks ago announced his project speed plan to get the economy back up and running following the COVID-19 crisis, um, he drew upon um, Franklin D. Roosevelt as his source of inspiration sure. for that, of course. And you mentioned as well the need for a sort of network of fellow professionals, people who can you can look to for support, Tony. I think that's incredibly relevant now in um this period as well with COVID-19 because it's important as leaders to know that we're not alone and know that we're not lone wolves and that we can look to people for just that sort of guidance and reassurance that we are on the right track as it were. Um, On the whole though, how has it been for you as a school navigating the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine that the pandemic has posed some incredible challenges for you. It has. I mean, our own school community is, is has been impacted to a degree. Not thankfully, not not we haven't had any members of staff or, or students who passed away. But much more um, economically, many of our parents have been furloughed um, and you know, are really suffering economically to a considerable degree. And lots of our parents work in and around Heathrow Airport, and as you as you can imagine, that's been impacted greatly. Um, it, it, it has been surprisingly, um, surprisingly smooth, and that might sound really odd. I, I've got a really good team uh, who I've developed over the last few years, and we were working on our kind of lockdown procedures in the weeks before uh, the, the March the twentieth uh, day, day was uh, was the kind of kind of announced. So we had a lot of things in place just in case. Um, but what we've had to be, we've had to be very nimble. Uh, we've had to be ready to 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 look at get the guidance as it has evolved. Um, we've also uh, used a lot of the ASCAL guidance to, as you know, if you think of that bigger community of of other leaders that are also uh, having to grapple w- 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 with this. And one thing we agreed right at the very beginning was that we would put a great emphasis on clear communication with our staff, 
and with our parents. So we've updated them on a weekly basis. Um, even if that hasn't been very much more to say, anything that's new to say, we just wanted to make sure that they we kept in touch with them. Um, we've had a great response from our staff. We put our rotor in place straight away for things like um, uh, working with our, key, our, our children of key workers. Mm. I guess the biggest challenge to us has been the realization that that actually remote learning and you know and video learning and so on and so forth is actually not that easy for a lot of our students. Uh, they don't have access to really good quality equipment at home, um, and uh, and they, some of them have struggled. And we've we've kind of almost classified them as vulnerable students and started to bring them back into school when we were able to do so. Um, but it's been what's been useful always is 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 the fact that other head teachers through our school or through Dawat are constantly sharing uh, their plans, and 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 it's been a very it's been it's been amazing how open head teachers have been uh, to sharing and 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 being part of this huge community that we've that we've had to just as it fall back on now. It's hugely encouraging that that sense of unity within the sector and indeed across the country has certainly come about during this uh, period. Um, interestingly, there's been a lot of discussion about sort of how remote work is being sort of uh, debated as maybe something that could come in from the lockdown period as being a permanent part of the way that sort of business and education operates um, in the UK. But of course, having had a few hitches um, yourself, I can imagine that it might not be sort of the emphasis that you're going to be putting on as um, you return to school in earnest in September. But it's important to remember as well that when schools do return, um, that the classroom environment that they remembered from the past is not really going to be there anymore, is it? There's still going to be social distancing no. in place. There will, of course, be Absolutely. bubbles introduced as well. And so that emphasis on mental health and well-being that's also been a key part of this lockdown period, that's still going to need to be prevalent, isn't it? Well, absolutely, Scott. You, you know, you're absolutely spot on. And, and, you know, I started off by talking about that kind of sense of moral purpose. For us as a school, the mental health issues and the students and staff well-being issues actually are paramount. We want our students to get great GCSE and A-level results and so on and so forth. But actually, their well-being is, is, is much more important to us. And it's going to be strange. You know, we've got, students are going to come back in, um, in in September. Some of them won't have been in school for five months. And they're coming back to social distancing signs and so on and so forth and routines that are, are going to be a, a real shock uh, to them. And we're planning a very um, detailed induction for all of them. Normally, we'd only emphasize induction for our New Year 7 students. But actually, it's a a whole new way of living for all of our students uh, going forward. Um, Even things like, you know, um, uh, how do I get to school? Um, You know, because our students are very reliant on public transport. Just, Just before you even get here, there's a whole new world that they're going to be operating within. Um, and, and we're working very hard on that. We think, for example, there may be another lockdown, even if it's a local lockdown at some point. So although remote learning hasn't been something that is necessarily been entirely smooth, we know we're going to have to fall back on that potentially at some point in the future. But it's also been a great learning curve for us. So suddenly, things like induction evening for our New Year 7s, that's gone out via via a really high-quality video presentation. So I think things like that will certainly retain going forward. It's caused us to review a lot of our practices, and I think they'll never they'll never be quite the same again, regardless, uh, anyway. And thinking about 
the pandemic's experience that you've had as a school so far and just reflecting back on the whole thing, would you say that there is anything that you've actually learned about anything during this period, be it yourself, be it the school, be it the way that your staff has applied themselves, be it about that sort of uh, real resilience among the pupils? I think maybe if I highlight um, two things, uh, one is just the way the staff as a whole, and I'm sure this has been the case in, in most of the schools, the staff as a whole have embraced this uh, with with great commitment and, and even during the Easter holidays and the um, and the half-time holidays, our rota uh, carried on without a break and, and nobody, there's no dissent from that at all. People have been great about that. Um, and also that school is really important to students. Uh, of course, they, they want they, it's important from a learning perspective. But what we're getting from our students, we've got our year tens coming in in uh, very small numbers uh, as we're allowed to right now. But what they're saying uh, above all else is, I just needed to get back to school to see you, to see the staff, and it's those social relationships that have been emphasised. I think um, uh, during the lockdown and their importance. And that's what we'd be really working on in September to rebuild those relationships and those routines for our for our students who, you know, perhaps are you know they're a bit shell shocked really by the whole experience. And thinking now about what the next twelve months will bring as schools do return fully in September, what do you think is on the horizon for yourself for the Douay Martyrs and its staff and pupils, and what do you really hope to achieve over the course of the next year as we get to grips with this new normal? Well, we're even thinking of the next two years, Scott. To be honest, and we've, mm. we, you know, we're, t- we're talking as, as a number of other school leaders have been talking about uh, the whole notion of a recovery curriculum, and so all of our faculties and all of our pastoral groups are really developing plans um, that will that that take that fully into account. Even things as simple as the the sequencing of of of, of our lessons, so that things that we think are particularly uh, difficult for students, they will be taught early on in case we face uh, a school closure later in the year when perhaps the remote learning thing uh, aspect of things can deal with, with things that are, are slightly less problematic within within the curriculum. So it, it's completely, it's caused us to completely change our curriculum planning uh, and, and how we go about that. Um, We've also completely changed um, big aspects of our routines in school. Just as you said earlier, you know, the whole bubbling and social distancing issue is important for us. Um, and we've also put in much more capacity in terms of pastoral support, in terms of, uh, of counselling uh, for, for, for students, in terms of, of non-teaching staff. Uh, we've really built that up um, over the, uh, so that that's going to be available you know, um, much more readily than perhaps it was in, in the past because we think that that's going to be a really big part of the next uh, two years or so. Uh, and I guess finally within that, it's, it's building confidence with parents um, just, to, just for them to, to be confident that it's safe for their uh, sons and daughters to, to leave the house, to come to school. Um, and and that, you know, that, that, they, that, that really is something that, that we are working with uh, our parents on it and, and, and then by the by by and large they're, they're, they're really working hard with us as well on that 
Sounds like it's going to be a challenging time with plenty to get your teeth into, Tony, but one that you're certainly ready to uh, really get into as well. And um, I think, you know, given how informative it's been having you join us today, it would be fantastic to have you back on the show at some point in the next few months just to catch up and see how things are getting on. Yeah, that would be a pleasure, Scott. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously, it's it, it's it's been interesting in the interview, just reflecting on what we've been doing. And, and uh, I'm sure I, I learned as much from my reflection with you today uh, as, as, as I have from the last few months as well. It's been a huge period of self-reflection. You're absolutely right. And let's certainly hope going forward from here that the trajectory is only going to be upward because, as you've said, during this interview, we still don't quite know just how the pandemic is going to uh, pan out from here. Um, Tony, it's been a real pleasure having you join us. Thank you ever so much uh, for your time. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe until we do touch base in future. Yeah, thank you, Scott. And, and you, take, you take care as well. Stay safe. Thank you very much. And for those tuning in, do continue to be sensible with restrictions lifting. Do look after yourselves because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and, most importantly, saving lives. I was speaking there to Tony Corish, head teacher of the Douay Martyrs Roman Catholic Secondary School in Hillingdon, London. Uh, coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of state and current chairman of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett in fact rose to prominence during his career to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? 
Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. 
things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself 
is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. 
I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, 
but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps 
you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the 
Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has Sakir uh, Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening.
in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.